1: FM. Does something in you want to play bigger in your life? Have you been living small, but yearn for more? Tara Moore is an expert on women's leadership, playing bigger in work and in life. Her new book, Playing Big, Find Your Voice, Your Mission, Your Message, shares her model for making the journey from playing small to being held held back by fear and self-doubt to playing big taking bold action to pursue what you see as your callings. With an MBA from Stanford and an undergraduate degree in English literature from Yale, you may wonder if Tara has ever played it small in her own life and how she was able to play bigger. Tara, hello and welcome.
0: Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be talking with you today.
1: I'm really thrilled to talk to you because I think this is such a big issue for women and your work has has proved it to be so, hasn't it?
0: Yes. You know, I started using the term playing big because uh, I did a survey of my blog readers and I asked them, what's the biggest challenge in your life? And at the time I was writing about a whole variety of women's life and career issues. And and so in that survey, I had a multiple choice list of questions with all those things that we typically think about as what women are grappling with most, work family balance issues, stress. Uh, financial challenges, health challenges. But because I felt like I was constantly seeing this phenomenon of brilliant women playing small, I threw that onto the list. I'm playing small. And when the survey responses came back, that was what the most number of women deemed the biggest challenge in their lives. So it, it absolutely is an epidemic and something that I don't think we talk about enough. Why do
1: you think that is?
0: You know, I think we don't always have language language for and literacy around topics like going for our callings and how we really move past self-doubt and how to define success on our own terms. Um, We just don't have a very high level of literacy around that or common language for that in our culture yet.
1: I, I agree with you on that, and I want to go into defining what playing big is, because if you're if you're a listener and you're in that online world, right, a lot of times people are talking about the the seven figures that you're being six figures or you know all these different things, right? What what is playing big mean? Yes.
0: Well, that's so not what I mean by playing big. <laughs> uh, it's probably the opposite of what I mean by playing big. I think one of the things that's so exciting about our historical moment is that women are entering professional realm and leadership um, and have the opportunity to redefine what success looks like and what we want from that part of our lives. And what I find is that when most women, if they're not, you know, getting too distracted by the noise around them or the noise online or pressures of what they think they should do or their ego comparing themselves. If we can set all that aside and then talk about what playing big really means for them. It has a lot more to do with doing the work that they feel will make the greatest contribution It often has to do with reclaiming some long lost passion or part of their creative life that got buried a long time ago. Um, It might have to do with a kind of personal bold move, uh, like a change in location or taking on um, a new volunteer leadership role in their community. So my definition of playing big is it's being more loyal to your dreams into your fears, mm. and in my own journey, what looked like uh, what what really was playing big for me didn't look very big from the outside, especially in the early years. Because for me, playing big was leaving a very comfortable, prestigious job to take a more entrepreneurial career path, which at the beginning was you know a very small fledgling business that no one could really understand what the heck I was up to. (laughs) Um, And most of all, for me, playing big was starting to write again. Uh, I love to write. I had grown up loving to write. And I had really had that passion um, squashed out of me in very critical and competitive educational environments. And the biggest playing big for me was just deciding to write for myself and starting to do that Again, And I would say even now, when some people might look at my business and there's a lot of big stuff in it, media, whatever, to me, always the biggest playing big is like writing the thing that feels bold to say and feels scary to say and being true to my own creative voice.
1: So you've been on the Today Show. Is that playing big for you? Yes and no. You know, what was playing the the aspects about
0: it that would that are playing big for me are was the inner game of how I needed to challenge my own inner critic to do that. So when, you know, when I get when the first time I got booked on the Today Show, I've now been on this I've just I think it was the book with my fourth visit there, which has been great. Mm-hmm. Um, the first time I got booked, you know, uh, my inner critic had a couple of really big narratives going on. One was, I can't possibly pull this off. The hosts aren't going to understand what I'm trying to say. We can't, I can't get anything sub- substantive across in a two minute segment, which is usually mm-hmm. what you get. <laughs> and, you know, I'm going to, Um, it's going to come off all wrong. I need to prepare more. I need to practice doing local media first. My inner critic had all those narratives and it had a whole strain of body image narratives. You know, all the body image issues that I'd sort of worked through in my daily life enough to feel comfortable walking around, you know, in my regular life. Now there was a whole new level of you're going on national television The anchors that you're sitting next to are all going to be, you know, size four and six feet tall and you're five, not even five feet tall and not size four. And how is that going to look? And I had all that stuff coming up in a very vicious way. Um, And so the playing big was the inner game of having to recognize those as irrational inner critic voices, not the voice of truth and not take direction from them. And try and find a place where I could instead focus on what I wanted to say, who I wanted to serve. Hopefully, by by saying some of those messages and going on the show. So that's what, what made it playing big, um, not the external marker of success.
1: Mm-hmm. When you when you you said something that was really important that I think the listeners will really. Um, be interested in. And you talked about that inner critic, right? The body image issues that you'd work through in your daily life. Yeah. Most people, when that would come up again, they would tell themselves the story of, Oh, I apparently I haven't worked through this stuff because it's come Mm. back to visit me. Can you explain the difference?
0: Yeah. I'm so glad you brought that up because what I have found is um, that women, we we don't actually recover from or graduate from (laughs) having an inner critic. We don't evolve beyond it. We don't find a way to live without it. That's kind of the bad news (laughs) side of the equation. Uh, If you look at the writings and reflections from women at the top of their field, many of them talk about the still vicious inner critic they have. And I, you know, in the book I love sharing some of their quotes and, and telling some of their stories of that, of whether it's, you know, the Dean of Engineering at Harvard saying who, you know, has pat dozens of patents and so many amazing scientific accomplishments, saying she still feels not qualified for her job all the time. Or Twyla Tharp, who's one of the most famous choreographers of our time. She has 19 honorary degrees. And every time she goes into the dance studio, she's overcome by the voice that says, this is going to be the one that reveals you have no talent. People are going to walk out of the audience on opening night laughing. So all these examples like that. And what I have found now working with thousands of women around their playing big is that the inner critic continues to speak up most loudly and most viciously when we're taking an important playing big step. And that's why Twyla Tharp hears her inner critic when she goes in to start a new dance, not when she's sitting at home on her couch. She's going to hear it a lot more loudly when she's embarking on that next risky, creative, visible, vulnerable endeavor. And so I don't think that we're trying to um, find confidence in order to play big or that we need confidence in order to play big. I think we need a effective way of being in relationship to our self-doubt. Knowing our self-doubt is always going to be there, especially as we stretch into playing bigger. So that's how I look at what happened, you know, with me in the Today Show. I was upping my game. I was doing something that scared the crap out of my safety instinct. We're going on live TV in front of 2 million people with hosts who sometimes kind of like to make fun of their guests. Like, this is scary, right? Very normal for my ego to be scared. Very normal for my safety instinct to say, you know, I think it would be better if we Stayed home with the baby carrots and the hummus and a good reality TV show marathon, right? Much more cozy for the safety seeking part of me. And so I believe the inner critic is a manifestation of that safety instinct, that when the safety instinct needs some really uh, intimidating arguments to try and get us back in the comfort zone, it starts all those inner critic lines. Oh, you're going to make a fool of yourself. You're not qualified. So, yeah, we're always going to keep hearing the inner critic as we're playing bigger. And and our work is really to learn how to notice it in the moment and not take direction from it.
1: And so how do you do that?
0: Well, I use the very simple practice, and it's one of many that I talk about in the book. But for me, it, it is the most foundational one and the one that I use most of noticing it, naming it remembering the root cause of it and then um, trying to side with or take direction from a different part of myself. So um, to give you to to continue with that today show example first is just noticing, Oh, the part of me that's saying um, I'm going to look ridiculous on camera they're not going to understand what I'm saying. That's my inner critic, and that actually is a huge thing in itself. Because for most of us, when we're hearing those lines in the t- in the moment, they sound extremely rational and extremely credible and compelling. And so, just being able to have the aha moment thought, "Oh, that's my inner critic," and then to have that whole background that you've done some work to is to know it's not the voice of truth. Okay, now, so now I know that's what I'm listening to. And now I'm going to remember what that motivation is. And it, I believe it always comes from the safety instinct. And so I will often ask myself, what is the inner critic trying to protect me from right now? So why is my inner critic saying all this? Oh, it, oh, right. I'm, a part of me really doesn't want to go on live TV and fail or make a fool of myself or like have a painful experience around that. Okay, now I know the motivation. And I can respond to that motivation with compassion. And I love the line, one of my favorite kind of lines or um, spirits in which to respond to the inner critic is, thank you so much for your input, and I've got this one covered. So it's like, thank you for trying to make sure I don't really make a fool of myself or hurt myself in doing this. And honey, it's okay. I've got it covered. There's a grown-up in the room who's going to make sure nothing horrible happens to us here. And then lastly, trying to side with another part of myself. So then remembering, well, whoa, okay, I have the floor for two minutes with two million women watching all around the country. What do I want to say to them that might might, maybe, make some small difference, make some positive opening, some helpful moment in their day or in their lives. And if I can now connect with the part of myself that is longing to have that kind of impact and that kind of connection and be a service, now I can center my energy and have my action come from there.
1: Well, thank you for that, because I think that really helps the listeners, right? And in two parts, one is that the inner critic is there. Even when we do the work, it doesn't mean we haven't done the work. It's about we're probably playing, we're taking that step to playing big in a part Mm -hmm. of our life. And then when we can notice it, instead of being afraid, right? And then shutting down going, oh, I'm just going to be safe. I'm going to stay home and eat the baby carrots and the hummus because that's way safer than, you know, being vulnerable on the Today Show. We can work through those feelings and then it can give us also information of, well, what is it that we want? We don't want to fail on the today show, but what is it that I want to be able to deliver to the people that are going to be watching? Yes. Yes. So it can be a great messenger for us. Can't it?
0: It can be a great indicator that we're stepping up our game. It can be um, a great, like uh, it's kind of, you know, the panicked, part of us like waving on the side of the road, it can kind of alert us to what feels scary and vulnerable about the situation so that we can take care of and reassure the scared part of ourselves.
1: Yeah. Well thank you for that. So I have a question for you because so mm-hmm. often people will look at you and say, wow, you know, Yale as an undergrad, Stanford, MBA, um and was there a lot of pressure for you to go on and do big and great things with coming out of those institutions? You know, I
0: I didn't feel actually pressure from those institutions to do great things, but I did feel quite confused out of my experiences at both of those places because on the one hand, there's a lot of messages that um, the students that are there have a great deal of potential and you can do great things and da 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 On the other hand, because of the way academia works, and this isn't just true of you know, Ivy League institutions, I think this is true of any traditional educational environment, the environments that almost all of us were in. Um, The people, especially in higher education, that are teaching, that are guiding, that are evaluating our work and giving us feedback on our work, have no training in how to nurture a person and how to nurture a voice and how to inspire and how to sensitively give feedback. And so I found that what happened to me in both undergraduate uh, education and graduate school was that I gained incredibly valuable intellectual skills. And I did hone and develop my mind and develop my knowledge. But my confidence and my creativity very much got hacked away at. And so I came out of those experiences not feeling like I could do great things. And I really had to do a lot of personal work to find a center from which to take action in the world. And I see this a lot in the women I work with, particularly those of us that were high achievers or good student types that um, praise, consistent praise and gold stars actually creates a kind of risk aversion and fear. Um, And also that the the educational experience leaves a lot of women feeling a little dislocated from themselves, like it did for me. And that also um, student mode can be very comfortable for women because the good student behaviors are very similar to good girl behaviors we're going to respect authority we're going to follow the rules we're going to listen to the instructions and prepare hard and study hard and do them well so we can get into kind of a comfort zone with school that can either then lead us to seek more and 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 more education instead of jumping into more vulnerable scary action um, or we can bring kind of our student mode into the career landscape, where it's really not the toolkit we need. And and if we do what it took to succeed in school in work, um, we'll sabotage ourselves quite a bit. You
1: no, know, I so you made that point in your book, playing bigger. And I so agree with you. There's that good girl mentality that we are programmed right? Do this to get this, do this to get this. And then when you leave that, that's not the way the working world exists, does it?
0: No, not at all. It's much more about advocacy. Most of the time when you do remarkable things, unlike in school where you're going to get the A plus from the teacher in your career, when you do remarkable things, some people are going to love it. Some people are going to hate it. So there's going to be a lot of criticism There's going to be polarized reactions. Um, it's really important to learn how to influence and challenge authority in our careers, which is a skill we never learn in school. We also in our careers really need to know how to stop looking outward to the next course, the next workshop, (laughs) the next internet research project for the information and when to say, okay, you know, right now I know enough. I know enough to complete the project for this client. I know enough to pitch the project. I know enough to put up the website. I know enough to start teaching it. You know, just that, that, that I know enough. So there's a lot of, been a lot of emphasis, I think, in the personal growth world on I am enough, but I know enough. And uh, I'm going to start acting from and trusting what I already know. And in school, of course, we're never asked, you know, don't do any research. Just write a paper based on what you know. Or um, today we're just going to like have a test based on some things that you already know. That's not the model of school. So we think that doing good, diligent work is about going outside ourselves for the information. But that's not true in our careers. And it's particularly problematic for women because usually going outside ourselves for the information means internalizing the existing body of knowledge, which is usually what men have been saying about it for the past few hundred years. So we're also blocking ourselves from the different truths that we may have to bring forward.
1: So when you're talking about this, I'm thinking about self-awareness, right? It doesn't seem to be in our educational system. There is, we cultivate self-awareness.
0: No, I mean, self-awareness and many different kinds of emotional intelligence Mm -hmm. are just not part of most educational environments still not all of them and there are certainly amazing teachers and schools and educational movements doing different things but traditional no well
1: especially now with this push to race to nowhere where we're you know everybody's trying to get into um the colleges and there's so much there's so much scarcity in higher education Mm. right so it's like well we just have to get those test scores even better and we need to shut down all this other stuff um so, you know, the focus gets even more tight. That's what I, I see. Mm-hmm. Um, so how, did, how do we help people? How do we help the listeners work on that self-awareness piece? Because we've been through the educational system, especially most of the listeners here. We've been, you know, conditioned in a manner of, of how we're supposed to do. We, then we come out and you and I both work with women who are trying to move through this. So how do we work on this?
0: I think the power of consciousness, shining the light on something is just amazing. And a lot of times all we need to do, what I see, you know, in in my program is that a lot of times we just need to put some language to something for someone, allow them to see their patterns and they can't go back to those patterns in the same way. And if you add then to just that consciousness, some practices to help you develop new habits or new ways of being, you're, you're in the process of change. So for example, with this with the shift from the good student behaviors to what we need to play big in the workplace, you know, I just highlight for people, okay, look at what's your relationship to authority. The good student relationship is adhering to whatever the authority says, the playing big relationship is choosing in a more discerning way. When do I need to follow authority, authority? When do I need to challenge authority? When do I need to influence authority? Second area is when am I turning outside myself for knowledge when it's really time to trust what I already know? Look for where's that happening? What happens if you apply that lens to what you're grappling with now? Um, third area is preparation versus improvisation. Good student mode is all about preparing for everything and thinking that the more preparation, the better. And in our careers, we need to get equally comfortable with improvisation, even improvisation that feels chaotic and like too out of control and preparation and really, and really start to discern when do you need to bring each one forward. Um, so those are some areas just to start bringing Consciousness too, and trying out some of those new behaviors.
1: I want to talk about that improvisation because I thought that was brilliant when I was reading your book. Um, because again, the good girl, right? It's how hard do you work, how many hours do you work? I mean, those are the things that we hear about in our workforce. And coming off of the Thanksgiving vacation, right? It was how many people did you have at Thanksgiving? Because those mm. become measurable versus you know oh if you if you're improvising if then maybe you're just winging it and you don't really care but yeah say more about why improvisation is so important in the workplace
0: yeah well when i went into the workplace after i finished graduate school i went I I had worked in the nonprofit sector before business school. I went back into the nonprofit sector and I went to work for a large foundation, had $2 billion in assets, and I was overseeing a part of the grant making portfolio. So helping to decide how that money should be spent. And I went into this organization because I was very intrigued by the, they were sort of going through a huge change process and becoming more current in how they did their work. And I also went into it because there was this really remarkable uh, win- team of women that I would be working with in my department, fabulous women boss, great women colleagues. I knew they'd get along with them. They were all super smart. And then after I had spent some time in the organization, I, what I experienced was that the organization was full of these amazing women, like the women on my team, really bright women who prepared really hard, like you're talking about, put in a lot of great work, very diligent, very conscientious, very accurate in their work. But at the very, very top levels of leadership of the organization, it was still all men. And interestingly, they would often make decisions in a lot more of a rash, improvisational way. So they would like get together and be like, oh, there's this need in our community. And I think we're going to, you know, take a couple million dollars here and do this major initiative. And this, you know, more junior, slightly more junior woman in the organization had been thinking about an idea like that for five years thinking, oh, I'm going to conferences and gathering knowledge about how to do it best. And maybe when I have a little bit more experience and not feeling ready yet. And it's not that what the guys were doing was right. It was actually destructive what they were doing because it was so improvisational and so rash and a lot of poor decisions were made. But on the other hand, all the way at the other end of the spectrum, these very smart, experienced women who were ready were so far on the other end of the spectrum that they weren't speaking up or taking any action either. So I think for women, there's this beautiful fusion that we can actually now find between our diligence and our experience and a new willingness to be more improvisational and be more bold and be a little bit more risk-taking. And that we need to do that if we want to have real action happening, if we want to have real impact, and if we want to become known as leaders or innovators in our field.
1: So it sounds like not to be as risk-taking as some of the men that you were speaking of, right? Of understanding kind of the pros and the cons, but not going to the other end of the spectrum where we, it's, it's like we have to wait and we postpone until we finally learn enough of, of understanding like what's the worst case scenario that can happen, right? What are the risks and what are choices that we can make and, and move through it instead of waiting for that perfect time? That's what it sounds like you're saying.
0: Yes, and that goes into the chapter in the book on leaping and, and my philosophy about taking imperfect action, which is that you wanna always be taking quick, experimental, small actions. To move forward in the direction of your playing bigger to try out your ideas. So that is a huge risk mitigator because it means instead of, let's say for you, playing big is writing your memoir and you're feeling like you have to take, you know, your initial inner critic narrative would be, well, I need more writing classes and I don't know how to structure a memoir and I should hire a coach. So now I'm saving up for the special memoir writing coach. So all that, I would say, are different strategies, excuses in a way for hiding and and playing small. But you can take a leap and take a more um, bold action, but it's not going to be, oh, I'm just going to go write my whole memoir right now because that's what it means to play big. It might be more like, I'm going to write one powerful scene from that memoir. And I'm going to write it in the next two weeks. And my definition, a leap is always an act- a simple action you can complete in less than two weeks. And I'm going to send it to three publications. And I'm going to try and learn from that what if my writing is really a good fit for the kinds of publications I think it is or what the feedback is. So you have a learning goal that you're, you're oriented towards learning something from the leap and you're going to succeed if you learn that thing, whether or not the piece gets submitted, accepted, and you're in action quickly.
1: That makes me think of uh, Carol Dweck from Stanford and the growth mindset that and she's mm-hmm. been a guest on the show a couple times where she's talked about, you know, when you're in that growth mindset, it's you can make mistakes, but what can you learn from it instead of letting it define you? And that's what you're talking about.
0: Yes. The difference, and I love Carol Dweck's work, the, the nuance I would add there is that it's incredibly powerful to decide up front what you're trying to learn from something mm-hmm. rather than just saying, oh, well, I failed, but what could I learn from it to console myself? So in other words, you might send out those pieces saying, I want to learn it, what publications are a good fit? Or I'm going to write this essay to learn if I really like writing about my past as much as I think I'm going to. So you're going into it with a learning goal or a learning question, which means that no matter what, you're going to be successful because the action is going to give you some information around that question. It kind of keeps us centered in an intrinsic measure for success as we're leaping. And then we can take what we learned and design the next leap accordingly.
1: I love that. Um, So when you made this transition from working from this big foundation, right, to going and doing your work that you mentioned earlier, and what were the people around you thinking?
0: I, well, people were really confused (laughs) because people were like, what are you going to be coaching, soccer? I don't get it. You know, not a lot of people in my world necessarily knew about coaching. Um, It also, it seemed very kind of, solitary to people who know me because I had been working, you know, in a large organization with a lot of community groups and I'm a quite extroverted person. And they were like, "What? you're going to go off into like a little office. And I was like, no, no, no. Cause I kind of knew it wasn't, you know, it wasn't really about coaching for me. I knew what I knew inside was I want to work in the personal growth world. I want to be writing. I want to be in an entrepreneurial creative role. I want to be doing things in the media but i didn't you know i didn't have any language to explain that to most people i knew at first um so most people were pretty pretty concerned and um pretty unsupportive and that was very hard for me uh and and i think it's it's one of the reasons actually that i now do my work through a group program because i came to believe that when women are making a big transition towards their playing bigger, as much as the people in our lives love us, it's sometimes very hard for them to fully support that. It may tap into their own fears. They may be very attached to the old version of us we may not know how to ask for the kind of support that we want and and give a mistaken impression. We're asking for advice or something like that. So I think that these sort of alternative communities that we can form um, of people who aren't attached to an old version of us, people who are on a similar journey, it can be very, very important and helpful. And so I love that that through the Playing Big program that gets created for women, Um, Because I needed that myself. And for me, it was just, you know, some other women in my coaching training program. We were kind of all um, embarking on very new journeys in our lives together. And it was so essential to have their support. When when most of the people in my life were just like, kind of like, we don't get it. Well, we don't even get what you're doing, Dara.
1: (laughs) You have this great education. And what are you doing? Mm Mm-hmm. So support was something that was really essential for you to help you move through. And and you had said earlier that playing big for you is about writing. And why is that so important to you?
0: You know, I think that I can't answer that except with a spiritual answer. You know, I think we all get a few activities in our lives that are conduits for us to joy and um, being connected to something larger than ourselves and grace. And for some people that's, you know, running marathons and for some people that's gardening and it's different for each of us. Uh, But for me, one of those things is writing. So I, I find it, it's, it's not only really the center of my work, but it's also my spiritual practice. It's what makes me feel like myself it's what makes me grateful, you know, for the day. Um,
1: so and that's the best way I can answer that. And with writing, there's so much there's so much out there about metrics, right? And what are your thoughts about metrics in terms uh, of what your writing? Do you mean? In terms of your writing, like how many shares. Like I interviewed Betsy Rappaport earlier this year mm. and she said, Look, if 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 I guess the question that she asks writers is, um, if you can change one person's life with what you write, is it worth it? Mm. You know, and usually one of her writing students will say yes. Mm-hmm. So then why not write it? we so often, don't you think one of the things that contributes to our smallness is we will, that inner critic will say, well, there's only going to be one person or there's mm-hmm. only going to be 10 or there's only a thousand,
0: right? Yeah. Or you're not on it's, the. T- Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. So interestingly for me, because I was so, I was, So um, I got so screwed up around my writing through the experience of of kind of having it be evaluated in college. You know, I kind of joke what the writing workshops were like where I went to college was like, come into class, read a bunch of poems by T.S. Eliot, go home and write a poem imitating T.S. Eliot come back and have your poem passed around by the class and marked up with everybody's red pen and have them give you their various opinions on how it should be better. (laughs) So not exactly like here's a wise and sensitive process for finding your own voice. So I, You know, I and I joke that I took a seven-year sabbatical from writing, sponsored by my inner critic, after all of those experiences, Um, and not just the experiences of of getting negative feedback or positive feedback. Because positive feedback, as you know, from your your shows with Carol Dweck is just as, um, debilitating, mm-hmm. but also just the whole atmosphere as, as a very, um, left brain focused education, you know, not a lot of honoring of the mystery and sacredness of the creative process. And so I got very lost from my writing, didn't write for many years. And for me, in order to start writing again, I had to really, let go of focusing on what anyone else would think. So for me, it wasn't like one person is enough. It was like, well, it was one person and the one person was me. Mm. It was, you know, Tara, if you, and it was literally, you know, a graced day when the thought finally hit me. Oh, if you're going to write consistently and you're going to write again, it's going to have to be because you are a woman who loves to write period, end of paragraph, end of sentence. And that was how I started to write again from that place. Like, Oh my gosh, the beauty of, you know, getting up. I think the first blog post I wrote was on Thanksgiving morning in 2008. And that was coming out of that seven year hiatus from writing and it was like the grace of having something to do that day that was about my inner life and having a reason to pause and think about what do I think about Thanksgiving? What is my lifetime of experiences around Thanksgiving and writing through that until it brought me to a really beautiful place. That is why I was going to write. And at the same time, I then for a year and a half went from having a blog with 38 subscribers. It started with me emailing all my friends and family, thinking they would all subscribe and they'd all be <laughs> interested, you know. I emailed like 250 people I knew and then I had 38 subscribers. I'm like, "What? Oh my gosh." And then and then it took me a year and a half of blogging consistently until I had 150 subscribers. So I say to people, if you ever want to know how to have a secret blog, I can show you how. <laughs> now, you know, totally different picture. I'm blessed to have an incredibly, you know, rich and large audience. But I'm, I'm sharing this because um, it's, a, you know, at the same time that I was writing for me, I was f- full of frustration when my blog wasn't growing, because I also wanted, you know, another part of me wanted audience and reach and impact and spotlight, you know, all that stuff. My friends who are into astrology would say that's my rising Leo part of me. Um, And, and so it, it's both, but I think the big um, necessary piece in, in that for me to be able to hold both, and I talk about this a lot now in the book, and it's part of what I teach, is that I, I always believe that feedback tells me about the person giving the feedback, and it doesn't tell me anything about me, mm-hmm. which means that when my blog post would get a lot of shares, I would never take that to mean That was a great blog post and the one that didn't get a lot of shares was not. Or, oh, I am a good writer. Okay, good. It's getting a lot of shares. It's not about that. Shares tell me about the people reading. Oh, that's okay. What about that? Is it that the topic interested them? Um, Is it the way that the story was told? What information can the number of shares give me about what works for my readers? So it's not um, a statement on my merit. It's information that can help me be more effective in reaching people. And so it's not personal and it's nothing that would affect my ego, positive or negative. And that's what allows me to hold both. It's like, I'm interested in, in what's getting traction, but I'm interested from a very emotionally neutral strategic place and, all the heart and the need of it, you know, is um, about my relationship with my muse. It's not about the people out there and what they think.
1: So, is that what helped you at a year and a half of writing consistently with 150 subscribers? Is that what helped you keep going um, through that through that hard time?
0: I didn't really totally understand that then. Um, Then I just understood this is so frustrating and annoying. <laughs> <laughs> and why is it that I'm seeing blog posts that then my little like judgmental voice would come out too. And it would be like, I'd be reading some, you know, especially at the time, it's not as true now, but I feel like maybe 2008, 2009 was like the height of all these really macho um personal development blogs, you know? So I'd be seeing these posts that would just be like 10 rules or like 10 tips for your awesome life. And then it would be like, one, wake up at 4am every day. Here's why I wake up at 4am every day. Two, run 17 miles. Like, And I would just be reading these things. and then it would have a bajillion shares. And I would look at that and be like, wait, you know, I know what I wrote is quote unquote better than that. So why won't anyone pay attention to it? I was so frustrated. Um, And then I did have to, then over time, yeah, I started to like understand with that more strategic lens. Oh, because people like lists and blog posts. Oh, because people are scanning when they're reading online and things need to be a little simpler than I was writing them at first. And, you know, all of that. um, Yeah, so then that stuff started to help.
1: And then what became the tipping toy point for you?
0: Um, it actually was, again, very tactical and strategic, which I think um, a lot of brilliant women share with me, making the mistake of thinking that quality work will get more attention. Like, the better it is, the more attention it will get, turns <laughs> mm-hmm. out not to be true. Um, so it was very tactical things of learning. Oh, I actually need to be writing outside of my blog. I need to be guest posting a lot of places. This isn't going to grow virally enough on its own. Um, I need to be sort of framing the topic in a way that makes it clearly relate to a situation or struggle that someone would be grappling with. You know, the initial stuff I was writing, I was in love with it, but it was, it was very abstract. Um, and I never, you know, I, I never would go so far as to feel like I was compromising my voice or not saying what I, you know, not being authentic. Never, 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 never. But it is, there is a kind of, um, I think, slow sense of um, slowly as as I wrote more and more posts and started to observe how different things hit, I started to consciously and unconsciously learn what works in this particular medium of blogging. Um, And that's more about how things are packaged than what you're actually saying, but kind of what, what packaging, what length, what density works.
1: And so was that how you owned your own bigness? Going through this process.
0: Um, I guess I never think of it that way. It's an interesting phrase, owning my own bigness. I think I think I don't own my own bigness. I think (laughs) something much greater than me owns all of our bigness. Um, But I get to try and create a life that allows as much of that bigness as possible to come through.
1: I love that. Create a life that allows the bigness to come through. Thank you so much for coming on today and sharing your journey and also ways for the listeners out there to play bigger in their life because I do think this is an important topic because I do know that I work with a lot of women who, you know, their heart, there's something that they yearn for, right? Mm-hmm. And so having mm-hmm. this opportunity to hear, you know, your own personal stories story as well as strategies for people to help them move through it is an important thing because by listening to your story of what is possible, they can think about, okay, if that's possible for Tara, what is possible for me? Right. So thank you. Thank
0: you. Thank you. So thank you. thank you so much for and, having uh, me and for the lovely conversation lovely and for doing what you're doing. You've brought, you brought a lot of important, important conversations, conversations to your Well,
1: li- your oh, Thank you. So playing big, when I opened up this show today, I talked about, I asked you the question of does something in you want to play bigger in your life? Is there a calling? Is there something you're yearning for? And remember, first it's important to define what does playing big mean for you? And I love the fact that Tara said it's not about, you know, these making seven, you know, millions of dollars, right? It's about what is playing big for you. And it doesn't have to be the external stuff. So first, it's to identify that. And then, as she talked about, go and test it out, right? See if that idea actually aligns with the reality for you, for the experience, right? It's so easy when we're in these relationships or jobs or families to think that the grass is greener on the other side. But when we are actually experiencing, what are are the things that we love about it? What are the things that we don't? And always understanding. I mean, if you're a listener of the show, you realize that no matter what, even living when you live your dream, there are just dog days. And I don't mean the pleasant dog days. It's just there's sometimes the monotony, right? Or there's the drudgery or the dreary of what we do. And so often I think in the personal development world, it will be, oh, just follow your passion and the money will come and everything will be so hunky dory there's always going to be difficulties and it's about how do you move through them. Just like how we talked about, Tara and I talked about that inner critic and how you can do your work in parts of your life. So whether it's about your body image or your self-confidence or your writing, and then all of a sudden you think you've accomplished it, but it comes back, right? I always liken it to, you know, the inner critic comes knocking back at your door. It's going to tell you things. (laughs) That you thought you've dealt with. And instead of thinking that, oh, I haven't done my work, nothing's really possible, which is a self-defeating thought, it's about, oh, for her, the way she looked at it was you're playing big and it's the next step of playing big for you, right? So for her with the Today Show and her body image, she'd work through it in her day-to-day life, but all of a sudden the idea of having this magnifying glass of the television and two million people and sitting on the Today Show platform Brought up stuff, right, and it gave her a reason to not show up, right. It'd be easier to go home and stay at home and eat baby carrots and hummus than to go be there for those two minutes. And for some of us, we wind up getting getting in our own way or uh, creating our own um, self defeat, our own personal self defeat, right? Of why we can't have what we want. So for you, as you think about this, is what is playing big for you. What does that mean? And really define that. And I also invite you to stop waiting for permission. Right? That's one of the things that we do. It's like, oh, we need to have permission. We need to have a degree. We need to have x. And and then we're finally worthy, right? And this is an issue that I work with a lot of my clients on is stop waiting for permission. It is necessary like you can't be a doctor without going to medical school and passing the boards right? But looking at what are the actual prerequisites for the things that you want to do, you know, and, and there's some things that you actually have to have credentials for. And there are some things, are the, are you pursuing things? Oh, I have to read this book before I can do it. Are you doing that to distract yourself from playing big? Are you doing that as a reason to not pursue what it is you want? So really looking at this more from, um, the logical side of ourselves instead of being emotionally attached, but the logical side. Like what are the things that what are the skill sets that I need to play big? You know, first, so first define the playing big. Second, think about what are the things that you need to do. You know, maybe it is to go write a blog post. So then you go and experience writing it and then learning from that. What can you learn about it? And practicing that growth mindset where you're learning, not where you're letting it define you and who you are. So I invite you to stop waiting for permission and evaluate what it is that you need to move into these next steps of playing big. You know, Tara didn't go from 150 subscribers to the Today Show. There were steps. She talked about learning the strategies. There was a lot of writing. There was frustration that is all normal. That is part of the human experience, right? A lot of times you hear me say this often, we get into this compare and despair. Well, she went from 150 blog subscribers to the Today Show. You're not knowing the story in between, right? The frustrations that went on, how she moved through that. And like she said earlier, we all have the inner critic, right? We all have self-doubt and it's not that we get rid of it. We all have shame, It's not that we get rid of it, but how do we learn how to move through with that? How do we move through having this inner critic? How do we move through and become shame resilient? Because that's truly how we live a flourishing life is when we can move through and not let it get us stuck. So I invite you to stop waiting for permission, get clear about what it is that you want. And that may change over time. You know, That's something that in my own life and where I am. Some of the stuff that I've always wanted to do or been doing and the traditions, whether it's in my family or my business, you know, I'm rethinking and making tweaks and testing things out. So, and and then get, gathering information, right, before I take, for, for the next step that I take. So stop waiting for permission. When you do pursue credentials, I really invite you to check in. Are you pursuing these credentials? Because it's... Creating busyness in your life so you don't have to play big? Or is it something that's truly necessary for that next step of what you want to do? You know, and check in to see, like, she brought up a really good point about knowing what you already know inside of you, right? What is it that you know inside of you that you have to offer, right? And the big thing is, and then owning it. You know, Tara, when I asked her about. Owning her own bigness. She had said that it was, you know, for her, it was more about serving her bigness, that the universe owned it. She didn't own it. Right. And I mean, just like staying grounded, grounded that here you are, you have value, you are worthy. Right. You are worthy as is. And how can you show up and serve people? So I invite you to play big in your life. First, define what that is. There's no right answer, right? A lot of times when I'm doing these things myself, I remind myself, Corinne, you can change your mind. This isn't this isn't permanent. It's not a commitment for the next 30 years because those are the things I get in my own way of moving forward. So I always remind myself this is a test or an experiment. Test it out and then see what you can go from there, right? So defining what you want to play big in, right? Giving yourself um, permission to do it instead of waiting for others and finding the adequate support, right? She didn't have support necessarily from the people around her, but she had it in another circle. So finding the support because there will be the other people who will think, what are you doing? That sounds crazy. It doesn't make sense because it may not be something they have experience with, right? And then doing an evaluation of, okay, what is it? What are the skill sets that I need in order to do this? And then owning it and being willing to make mistakes and learning from those. I look forward to hearing how you play big in your life. You can always drop me an email at www.howshereallydoesit.com and click the connect button. And for those of you that have been leaving iTunes um, reviews, thank you so much. That helps share the show with others out there. So I so appreciate that. Thank you. Thanks for listening to How She Really Does It. I invite you to subscribe to my weekly newsletter at howshereallydoesit.com. I do this show each week for you so you can now see the windows of possibilities in your own life. I believe there are many journeys for us to take. We can learn from others to see what is possible for ourselves. I believe there are possibilities for all of us, not just the ones Have acquired great success, but including those of us who have stumbled, lost our way, or only saw closed doors. With this show, maybe you can now see a glimmer coming through the windows. I call that the windows of possibility. Each week, I bring a guest who represents those possibilities. They too have had their own struggles and uncertainty, yet somehow they have found their way. My guests are an example of what is possible when you continue, when you learn, leap, fall down, and get back up. I invite you into this space so you can ask yourself if that is possible for them. What is possible for me? Really ask yourself that. I would love to connect with you. Please join me at www.academy.org. How does and thanks for listening today on a lake she is
0: dreaming
1: she is drifting never been so wide